Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me by ordering the memoir of Brian Grant and his battle with young-onset Parkinson's called Rebound. If you know someone with Parkinson's or you know nothing about Parkinson's, you will want to read Brian's story. Order your copy on Amazon or visit your favorite brick-and-mortar bookstore to grab one. Are you a Kindle reader, audiobook listener? We've got those versions as well. Support Brian's foundation, which supports those afflicted with Parkinson's, and pick up your copy today. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places, but there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. All right, so this is going to be a wild ride, I suspect, this episode. Uh, the bad news is that it is not going to be about the completion of of my list of the NBA's 75 all-time great players, 15 selected from each of five 15-season eras, assuring that no one was slighted because they were left out because they were compared to someone who played in a different era. That is essentially the crime that will be committed if players from the 50 greatest list are dropped in favor of current superstars for the league's top 75 list. There may be other crimes committed, and my list may very well slight someone, but trying to weigh who deserves to be among the top 75 more, Bob Cousy or Chris Paul, won't be one of them. The worst news for some of you is that this episode is going to be about LeBron James, or more precisely, the comments that are often made by players who played against him. Comments that suggest, despite all LeBron has accomplished, that they don't really respect him. And he's not alone in that. I hear similar comments about Steph Curry. Hell, even Kevin Durant has critics who want to diminish what he did with Golden State, as if he sat on the bench and watched Steph, Clay, and Draymond do the work that resulted in two more championships and damn near a third. Those people refuse to concede that the Warriors pre-KD were lucky simply to get to a second NBA Finals in a row. I still think they would have won their first trip even if Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving hadn't been injured, but we'll never know for sure, will we? Fact is, it is painfully evident that the Warriors never would have been dynastic without KD. 
criticize him for going to the team that eliminated him the year before all you want. I won't, but you can. But don't ever think the Warriors would have won another ring had they just kept Harrison Barnes and the rest of the 2017 Finals team intact. I mean, you can think it, just don't say it out loud. And if you do happen to say it out loud, and you find someone near you nodding or even vocally agreeing, then you should get away from that person or persons as quickly as you can. They are dangerous and not to be trusted. Now, the vast majority of the criticism of KD or Steph comes from fans. The distinction, and this is where the distinction comes in with LeBron. One, even with KD and Steph, no one that I've mentioned has the career accomplishments that LeBron has for as long or as in many different places. You would think that simply his longevity would prompt his critics to stay quiet. Which is the second thing. No one has ever been afraid to voice their view of LeBron as being overrated or not all that, even when they were playing against him. Sean Stevenson did it. Joakim Noah did it. Sean Marion did it. Those are the ones that just come to mind immediately. Even old heads like Clyde Frazier have not been afraid to say that LeBron ain't all that. What's also fascinating about the LeBron criticism is that quite a bit of it comes from players or stars that lost to him somewhere along the way, which would make it easy to simply chalk up as sour grapes, resentment, maybe jealousy or envy, except that they are guys who also lost to other superstars, sometimes in even more painful fashion, and you've never heard them take shots at them. That's what this episode is going to explore. Why LeBron gets dissed as much as he does in spite of all that he has done. Not by fans. I mean, every star has his share of detractors among the public. LeBron certainly has those among fans, but he's also consistently taken shots from players. Players he actually had success against. Which I just can't recall happening to the same degree with any other superstar. I was inspired to talk about this by the confluence of several events. One is the exercise of building my all-time 75 greatest players list and putting LeBron as the first member of the 06, 07 to 2021 era. I know some of you think I'm a LeBron critic, hater, whatever. Uh, no player has done more to deserve it. He goes in there, no second thought on my part. Which is what made recent derogatory comments from Rasheed Wallace and Paul Pierce so startling because both Sheed and Paul having faced LeBron-led teams both in Cleveland and Miami and at one point having beaten and then lost to him in Eastern Conference postseason battles. On top of all that, I recorded a conversation with Austin Carter-Samuels, a former standout collegiate quarterback who is now a performance coach specializing in the connection between an athlete's mental or psychological balance and his physical mechanics. I hope he's okay with me describing it that way. I think it's accurate. And I think you would find the conversation that we had extremely interesting. We did it on the No Filter Network, which can be found online at nofilter, N-O-F-I-L-T-E-R dot net. 
You can look in either my archives or Austin's for a recording of the conversation. It's accessible for free. It's roughly an hour long. We're doing a whole series that I think you'd find interesting, but this in particular, it's about how different athletes respond in pressure situations. He had a perspective on LeBron that stunned me, mostly because Austin is a football player who simply has observed LeBron from afar and does not claim to be a basketball expert in any way. But I do regard him as an expert when it comes to the psychological profiling of athletes. Now, Sheed, of course, did have an up-close view of LeBron, playing against him both as a Piston and a Celtic, in case you'd forgotten, because he was part of the team that knocked LeBron out of the second round in his last year with the Cavaliers. When asked if LeBron had played in an earlier era, what his level of success would be, she'd said he probably would have done good with his physical stature, with him being bigger than the majority of the rest of the players. So he probably would have held his own, but I don't think he would be as successful as he is now. It's a whole different era back then. I couldn't necessarily say that he would have been a beast, but I think he would have held his own. People saw that as damning with faint praise. Uh, Pierce's comments, meanwhile, was that he left ESPN in part because he was asked to talk about LeBron all the time, as if that was uh, an inconvenience or a burden. Uh, in any case, it's not the first time that uh, Paul has expressed disdain toward LeBron. Now, Sheet is known for many things, including loudly saying, ball don't lie anytime he's called for a foul that he considers unjust and the player shooting the subsequent free throw misses. I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Sheet because when I asked him one time if he golfed, his response was, ballers don't golf. Real ballers keep a ball and a pair of shorts in their trunk at all times in case they're driving by a park and see a court and a chance to hoop. Sheet has always had what I'll call that Philadelphia street honesty. That's where he's from. Uh, a sort of in-your-face truth. Not the least bit concerned if what he has to say might hurt your feelings. And I happen to agree with him when it comes to how the game has changed since LeBron entered the league and how the back half of LeBron's career has been in an era where the big men have disappeared, along with the physicality of the game, resulting in a 6'9", 275-pound power forward, that being LeBron, uh, being invariably the biggest, strongest player on the court. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. What makes him so devastating are his speed and point guard skills, which became ever more essential as the game sped up and got smaller and became more perimeter-oriented. That back half is also where he's had the most success, which I'm pretty sure was the point that Rashid was making. When there were teams built like his Pistons or Paul Pierce's Celtics, LeBron was great, but he was far from dominant. Teams like Detroit's 04-05 team, which had four players, 
Ben Wallace and three others, 6'10 or taller, listed as centers. And Antonio McDyess and Sheed were power forwards. And 6'9", Tayshawn Prince was a small forward. LeBron, in his second year, didn't make the playoffs that year. Or, say, the 9-0-9-10 Celtics, who started both Kevin Garnett and Kendrick Perkins alongside Paul Pierce at small forward and had Sheed coming off the bench. And that was a team that sent LeBron and the Cavs home in the second round. LeBron went to the finals once in his first five seasons, playing teams built like that and playing small forward. Since then, he's gone to the finals nine times in 11 seasons and has become a power forward for the most part as the league downsized, sometimes even playing center. I wouldn't go as far as she did in suggesting LeBron would have just been a star among the stars in an earlier era. That's way too steep a discount of his accomplishments. But being the biggest kid on the block has certainly worked in his favor, especially as he's aged, allowing him to exploit that size and strength advantage he would not have been able to if the league hadn't shifted as a whole to small ball. It's also interesting for point that will be made later that he shifted himself away from being recognized as the biggest kid on the block he was listed as a power forward the last time we saw him in cleveland then he had himself designated a small forward again his first year in la and for the last two he has switched to point guard now when she'd made his comments LeBron fans, at least on social media, were quick to point out the game where LeBron scored 25 points straight in Game 5 of the Cavs' second-round series against the Pistons in 07, resulting in a two-point win in double overtime. As if that somehow invalidated Sheed's point, or that he shouldn't be allowed to make any comments about LeBron because of that performance. But here's the thing. That loss... And the defense the Pistons did and didn't play against LeBron was a result of a feud between then-coach Flip Saunders and Sheed about what defensive system they should employ. Now, I can't recall now what the specific difference was. It was doubling LeBron or not doubling him, forcing to the baseline, trapping him. But whatever it was, Detroit was having an open revolution in the midst of that game. Credit LeBron for exploiting it. But just know Detroit's infighting played a part in his scoring spree. They were discombobulated. Second item worth noting, the Cavs then closed out the fractured Pistons in Game 6, led not by LeBron, who went 3 for 11, but Booby Gibson off the bench with 31 points on 7 of 9 shooting, including 5 of 5 three-pointers. It is, without question, one of the reasons so many players from Sheed's era don't hold LeBron in as high regard as his accomplishments might warrant. Because for a good part of his career, even in the playoffs, he did not play with the same intensity every night. This isn't about numbers or statistics or box scores. In that game six, LeBron still had 14 rebounds and eight assists and 20 points. Nor is LeBron alone in creating box scores that are deceptive as far as how much he actually dominated the game. And to be fair... He's had games where he's been a much bigger factor than the stats would have you believe. It cuts both ways with him, as things so often do. Nor is he alone in having the kind of game that produces gaudy stats that aren't reflective 
of a gaudy performance. I can't tell you how many times I watched Chris Webber have what appeared to be a lackluster performance, only to check the box score and find his line stuffed with big numbers. I guess this is where I stray from the statisticians. If I watch you play a game and come away thinking you didn't play well, whether it was because of your effort, your decision-making, or whatever, later discovering that you had a pretty good box score isn't going to change my mind. Find fault with that if you want. That's how I watch and judge the game. If anyone wants to dismiss Sheed or anybody else who isn't impressed with LeBron's accomplishments, as much as those accomplishments would seem to merit, that's fine. What I've tried to put my finger on is not whether that discount is warranted, but why is it that LeBron seems to get so much more of it than any other player, any other player who has achieved what he has? Why did she discount LeBron and not say Tim Duncan, who she battled with countless times, got the better of more, on more than a couple of occasions, but whose greatness he never questioned? Paul Pierce battled Kobe Bryant in the finals twice in three years, beating him once, but never said a peep about Kobe. How is it that I'm still hearing players like Gary Payton and Baron Davis and Earl Watson sing the praises of, say, John Stockton's toughness, even though he never won so much as one championship and whose stats outside of his incredible assist totals are fairly pedestrian for a Hall of Famer? That's, that's what strikes me about all this, is that there are guys with lesser accomplishments who have more people who revere them than seemingly with LeBron, or LeBron has a healthy number of both. Now, what surprised me in my conversation with Austin Carter Samuels on No Filter is that he said he sees in LeBron someone who has a deep-seated fear of failure that he's never fully come to terms with. It astonished me because Austin was referring to today's LeBron. Not the one back in Cleveland, pre-championship. Now, I often thought that. That LeBron was just skittish for whatever reason. Afraid of the big moment. Afraid to take on the responsibility of winning or losing the team. Uh, losing the game. I felt like losing the 2011 finals to Dallas was instrumental in his subsequent success. That he realized... I could lose on the biggest stage and I'll still wake up tomorrow. Uh, I think it's why his screams and tears were so primal when he got over the hump the following year by winning the 2012 title, his first over the Oklahoma City Thunder. And for those who have forgotten, the Heat closed out a pivotal game four to take a 3-1 series lead with James on the bench because of leg cramps. And he did not look particularly confident or aggressive down the stretch in game five going 3-for-10 in the second half, but he pushed through. He made some key free throws to bring the title home. What Samuels detected, I believe, is at the heart of what Sheed and Pierce and so many others have sensed about LeBron, almost down to the cellular level, that there is something that LeBron still fears, which we just generally don't equate with the all-time greats, not the ones that we put LeBron in, the circle in which we put LeBron, which I find remarkable after all that he's done, but I believe it to be true. I don't know what it is, 
but it would explain so many things that continue to baffle me about LeBron, like why there have been so many games still where it would appear the outcome still hangs in the balance. The game is still winnable, especially for someone as gifted as LeBron, and yet he shows no urgency to do so. Go back and watch the Sun series. There were at least two games like that. Austin suggested it's why LeBron has tried so hard to sell everyone on the idea that the Lakers are Anthony Davis's team or that they will only go as far as AD can take them. Because it's not that he necessarily believes it. It's just that it takes off the pressure. It's not that LeBron isn't capable of performing in the clutch, but that he's at his best when he's not expected to. Coming back from 3-1 down to the Warriors in the finals, for example. Going into the bubble while everyone was favoring the Clippers to come out of the West. Go back through his career and look at the times LeBron was favored or expected to dominate. He may have won when he was favored. Ray Allen's double-clutch three against the Spurs comes to mind, or Kyrie's three against the Warriors, but it was never LeBron stepping up to deliver the dagger in those situations where his team was favored. The times he's delivered in the clutch were when it wasn't expected, like scoring those 25 straight points against Detroit. The Pistons were the number one seed, playing game five on their home floor. If LeBron and the Cavs had lost, there would have been no shame attached to it. Go back and look at his clutch shots in the playoffs. Four of the five come either on improbable shots, the turnaround buzzer beating three against Orlando in 2009, or with the score tied and overtime assured if he missed the running bank against Toronto in 2018. What all of it says is that LeBron has the requisite physical ability to deliver in the clutch. He just mentally preempts himself from doing so at times. And if Austin can sense that simply watching LeBron on TV, you can be sure that players on the court with him can. It's actually remarkable, again, how successful he's been in spite of that. But I believe it has served as an asset as well. The fear of failure has also driven him to condition the way he has, to continue to move around and fashion teams that give him the best chance of winning without too much of the responsibility for that being on him. And this is the great distinction, the element that remains LeBron's Achilles heel. He fears facing an expectation he's not sure he can fulfill. In a way, it almost feels like a noble trait. He doesn't want to disappoint desperately doesn't want to disappoint, which requires tamping down expectations placed on him, shifting it elsewhere, taking credit when things work out, but otherwise seeing any loss as a collective. How many times have you heard LeBron say, well, just put this loss on me? I assure you, never. Austin put it simply, LeBron makes the shots you don't expect him to make, and misses the shots you do. Exactly. The off-balance three from deep over Steph to eliminate the Warriors in the play-in game? Nailed it. Four point-blank layups in game six against the Suns? Rolled off the rim. My big takeaway from all this, it's never going to end. We're never going to reach a point 
where LeBron accomplishes so much that those he accomplished against it against will forget that for all his greatness, he has never been fearless. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball, this Dr. Phil episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and, reshoot, rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. I told you this was going to be a wild ride. I just hope it was somewhat entertaining, enjoyable, maybe a little enlightening. If you really want enlightenment, I, I ask you, go find the conversation I had with Austin. I'm sure you will enjoy it and appreciate it and come away with some new discoveries as I did in the next podcast. I promise you, we are now going to finish my list of the 75 all time greatest and LeBron. Yes, LeBron will be on it in the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.